Welcome to Life Fire Layout, the podcast that brings the world of public safety to your listening device. I'm your host, Prescott Natto, and today I am extremely excited. I have an awesome guest for you. I'd like to welcome John Politis to the podcast. Uh, and, and before I turn things over to John, who's going to share some awesome stuff with us, um, John has a, a storied career. And so uh, I've had the advantage to take um, one of his many class offerings uh, at the Essex Rescue Squad um, last year. But I just want to, for the listeners, I want to read a little bit about who John is on paper. Um, and then we're going to, for the rest of the podcast, hear uh, who John is off paper, uh, which is arguably far more interesting. But what I'll say is uh, he has got such a storied career that I definitely want to take a brief moment to share a little bit about who he is. Uh, so John is a proven and respected emergency services leader and educator. Uh, starting in college, 1971, served in many capacities, EMT, firefighter, ski patrol, moved up to paramedic. He's a paramedic paramedic program director, state EMS official, not only in New York, but also Vermont, uh, an EMS chief and a fire chief. He has a reputation of integrity and solid leadership in both career and volunteer organizations, and has served on the board of directors for the National Registry of EMTs, the Committee on Accreditation for the EMS Professions, and has been co-investigator of original research and authored many articles and texts. Uh, in 1989, he led the town of Colony, New York, to consolidate the town's six rescue squads into a single municipal EMS department, which is quite a feat. He served as the, uh, the chief of the town of Colony EMS and uh, department from 89 to 2010 when he retired. Now, during his tenure as chief, Colony won two national awards, two regional awards, and a New York State EMS Service of the Year Award. In retirement, he served as interim director of a community ambulance and led them through a consolidation effort with a neighboring agency. He's also served as chief of his community volunteer uh, fire department and a highly sought after educator presenting both nationally uh, and internationally in US and Canada. Uh, that is where John and I actually met is when he was presenting. Luckily, we were fortunate to bring him to Vermont. Um, now, like I had mentioned, I took the uh, emergency services supervisor boot camp. Uh, and the one thing I do want to mention before I turn it over to John is I think arguably, although, uh, that bio is incredible. One of the coolest things that, uh, that John does is not just serve as a paramedic firefighter and ski patroller, but truly, truly a passionate outdoorsman, um, avid mountaineer and mountaineer and skier. Um, in the summer months, he actually works as a seasonal ranger in the Grand Teton National Park. Um, he serves as a member of the Jenny Lake Rescue Team. So I'm going to turn it over. John, cannot believe uh, that, that we've been able to make this work. Thanks for doing this, especially around the holidays. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks a lot, Prescott. Glad to be here. God, that makes me sound really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just a, re a regular guy like everybody else, but... Um, uh, yeah, I spent quite a bit of my time in my retirement. Um, I split my time between being a seasonal park ranger in Grand Teton and um, and then traveling around the country doing uh, leadership programs for emergency services. And I try to focus most of my energies on, um, you know, the frontline boots on the ground supervisor level, whether that's a lieutenant or captain or, you know, what have you. Because um, I think they really make a huge difference in organizations and really helps help the, the culture. And, uh, you know, if you work someplace that you like working, it's usually because you like the people that you 
work with. And, uh, and I, I don't think the importance of the frontline supervisor can be overstated. And, and, um, and honestly, I, over time, I just have seen an awful lot of, of, uh, fairly flawed leadership. Cause I think in our occupation, we, you know, we tend to promote people who are really good technically. Um, they're good firefighters or they're good medics, but, uh, and we haven't really spent any time preparing them and how to lead people and how to work with people probably most importantly. So, so what I love about that, John, and, and this is what drew me to your class to begin with is initially, I, I honestly just saw the name, you know, EMS you know, leadership boot camp, and said, Oh, that sounds that sounds cool. And then after two days in the boot camp, I said, Okay, this is incredible. Um, I want to make sure oh, that thanks. folks are aware of this class. <laughs> thanks. Um, because you you said it right there, we, um, we prepare people technically very, very well, we, we will send them to classes all over this country, to make sure that they are prepared to, you know, f- firefighter skills, EMS skills, etc. But then when you really if you stop and were to ask the average sort of mid level supervisor, what classes or how how they how well they feel prepared uh, to be sure. an actual supervisor of people, I bet the answer would probably not be stellar. Yeah, well, it's really not. And I think, um, you know, even if you take programs and things like, you know, fire officer one or two or three, they they tend to focus on the hard aspects of, of uh, being a, a fire officer. And, and th- for, as far as EMS is concerned, it's, just, it's leadership training for EMS is substantially non-existent. And, uh, and again, we promote people in both aspects of the job, both fire and EMS, because of the hard skills and usually not because of our ability to really work with people and to, um, you know, help get the best out of them. And um, so, yeah, I spent quite a bit of time doing that. And, and of course, I'm pretty passionate about the outdoors. I always have been. And my, I grew up, my, my dad was uh, was a big skier and he got all of his skiing as little kids. And in my, uh, my dad was a volunteer firefighter and idolized my dad. And I would go to the drills with him on Thursday nights. And I don't think there was ever a time in my life where I wasn't completely enamored with fire trucks and ambulances. And uh, and, and I haven't gotten very far in my life. I still am. So, uh, um, but, um, he got a skiing and really that was the, that was my introduction to really first aid and emergency care as we know it today. And, um, but he used to take me skiing and hiking and I was always, in addition to being enamored by fire trucks and ambulances, I, I just love the mountains. And, um, so I just have had this whole enduring you know, passion for being in the mountains and, and yeah, still doing so, that stuff too. So you, another thing that I really appreciate about that is um, not only are I mean, very similar to a number of folks, not only who have been on the podcast, but who are probably listening and saying, yes, I, <clears throat> I am that person who loves the fire service loves EMS so much, have loved it since I was a child. What I think is really neat is you took your your two passions and what you really learned and loved growing up, which is the outdoors and, and emergency services, um, and you've blended them together in, in such a neat way. I just want to ask you real quick about your time with uh, Jenny Lake Rescue Team, because for the listeners that don't know, um, this isn't just a standard go out Band-Aid sticky side down rescue team. They, they do uh, pretty intensive stuff. Can you share a little bit of detail there? Yeah, um, the Jenny Lake Rangers is a is the is the district of Rangers in Grand Teton National Park, which is responsible for the backcountry. Um, and I've worked as part of that district um, for about twenty five years. Now, not for not the entire season for that long, but part of every season for about the last twenty five years. Um, 
and the Tetons are are really a, an iconic mountain range that they are. If you close your eyes and imagine what mountains are supposed to look like, that's what the Tetons look like. And, um, and we have people literally from all over the country and the world that come to climb in the Tetons. Um, our hiking is uh, is absolutely stunning, and um, and people get sick and hurt in the mountains like they do anyplace else in the country. I think that I, I kind of liken it to it's ski patrol in reverse. That uh, um, as ski patrollers, somebody gets hurt, and we usually ski off the top of the mountain with a sled and treat them and get them down to the base. And uh, it's a little bit different with mountain rescue that you're going from the bottom, having to go up to the person, and um, and that really requires a high degree of fitness and determination and the willingness to suffer. Um, because a lot of mountain rescue is, is just a suffer fest. And um, you've got a pretty renowned rescue team in, in Vermont, which is uh, the Stowe Mountain Rescue. And um, and they do all the same kinds of things. So all the same things that happen in Vermont happen in Grand Teton National Park. Um, and the only reason that I was lucky enough to become part of it was I'm a paramedic. And, and I'm not a climbing ranger. I'm a paramedic ranger. And so um, I split my time between covering, you know, emergency response in the front country and, and also in the back country. And, uh, and I work with amazing people who um, I've always looked up to as being, um, you know, my heroes. And, um, you know, I'm getting to the point in my life where that, too, is going to come to an end. And, um, and I also, um, because of my age and um and everything that goes along with that, I don't get to do quite the same things that, um, you know, our, the younger members of the team get to do. Uh, but I still get out and I still I'm really actively involved in doing mountain rescue. I'm a helicopter crew member and a short hauler. And um, and because of my role as a paramedic, I usually am the medical unit leader and in handling med when it comes to an operation. So um, I love it. I absolutely love it. And the people I work with are amazing uh, and I, we have amazing leadership in our team also so th i think that's also uh it's a, there's um one of our team or actually our, our district ranger right now chris bellino actually graduated from linden state and uh, uh he's from portland maine and um and one of the people that's one of our sub-district rangers uh, nick armitage is actually from new jersey <laughs> and uh so we have this rather diverse group of people and quite a few of them are actually came from the East Coast. So, um, you know, and I, the last thing I would say is that while the Tetons are beautiful, um, and the, certainly climbing mountains in the American West is challenging, um, I would say that there are no more rugged mountains than you will find in the East because the trails and things that go up the mountains, there really are no such thing as switchbacks. They tend to go straight up and down things. And um, and, um, and you encounter all types of obstacles that can hurt you. And, um, you know, while we can use a wheel litter in a lot of places in the Tetons, trying to use a wheel litter on most areas of the East coast is darn near impossible. And it involves just having to carry the patient. Um, so there are definitely challenges, but I would say anybody that's involved, whether it's a New York State DEC Forest Rangers or Stowe Mountain Rescue or any one of the, you know, I know also Rescue Inc. down in Brattleboro uh, and Colchester Technical Rescue is super involved in this. Um, you know what, uh, like we say in the fire service, that fires burn just as hot in 
in uh, Williston, Vermont, as they do in New York City, you know, or and uh, it's all the same stuff. Um, yeah. It's just it's but it is a beautiful location to work. And I, I feel very, very privileged to be part of the team um, and uh, and getting to work there every summer. And our youngest daughter, Katie, is also as a is a, is a permanent ranger in the park. Uh, she got a permanent job last year. And um, so I'm really proud of that. We get to work together sometimes. So I, yeah. I think that's gotta be one of the coolest things. I mean, not, in, in general, not only the job that you just described sounds incredible, but then also being able to work with family is, um, yeah. is a pretty unique experience. Yeah. Uh, so John, <clears throat> excuse me. I just, I want to, to, uh, pivot for a brief <clears throat> moment. Um, before you and I have had actually a number of, of conversations before this recording. Um, sure. and in, in a few of those, you, you were able to share a story with me that I'd like, um, the listeners to hear as well, that I think is so impactful. I know it impacted me, um, being a, you know, a father and everything. And, and um, if you're willing to share, uh, could you take us back to an incident that occurred in October of last year? Um, that in essence, the, the, the prelim, all I'm going to, to, uh, lead in with this is that, um, it, it took you completely by surprise and the learning lessons that you pulled from it and have been able to share with me and soon the listeners was incredible. Would you be able to share a little bit about what happened in October of last year? Hey, we just want to do a quick pause X to thank our sponsors, L3 Harris, Proper, Paladin Biasella, Impulse, Doberman Emergency Management, and especially all of you who have been donating to our podcast. Thank you for helping us boost the signal. All right, let's jump back in. Sure. Um, I'm ready to talk about it now. Um, and um, in order to stay in shape uh, to do what I do in the summer, which involves a lot of long days in the mountains and in, in the backcountry, uh, I, I work hard to stay in shape by uh, backcountry skiing, ski touring in the winter. Um, and um, and I also um, like to go to the Adirondacks or the, either the high peaks or the southern Adirondacks and go climb things, meaning hike up hike up mountains. And so it's pretty typical that a day a week you'll find me up in the Adirondacks or southern Adirondacks or on Lake George uh, hiking mountains. And, um, and the reason for that is that even though I belong to a gym, we have a gym in our firehouse here. Um, you know, no gym workout can equal a day spent in the mountains, hiking up and down things. And, and, um, so, um, I got home from the Tetons last year around the 1st of October. And, um, and I went up to the Adirondacks. My first trip was I went up and did uh, Marcy, Skylight, and Gray, you know, which is, I don't know, pretty close to a 20-mile day. And and um, I had to travel a bit. And my wife and I were going to be going heading west, and she was coming with me because I was doing a bunch of conferences. And I had a spare day, and the weather was going to be good. So uh, she kind of knew. She said, well, what are you, what are you going to do that Sunday? And it, it was really – it was a – it was a Sunday and it was the day before Halloween. It was October 30th of last year. Um, so what was forecasted was, uh, was a beautiful day. And I'm, I hate to say it, I'm not, I'm not totally a fair weather climber, but um, if I have options, I'd rather pick good weather and stack the odds in my favor. So um, I was going to go up and do, and I went up to do a loop called Haystack Basin and Saddleback, which is 
kind of known in the high peaks to be one of the more rugged parts of the range. Um, and um, I got up on that on that Sunday morning and, um, you know, it was like I got up at 3.30, I think it was, and, um, um, you know, I just grabbed a quick bite to eat. And then something happened that morning that never happens. My wife actually got up and came downstairs to see me off. And that never happens. Um, and um, yeah, I have to tell you, getting up at 3.15 or 3.30 in the morning, and then, you know, I knew I was going to be launching from the house at around 6, or excuse me, around 4, because I wanted to be at the trailhead at 6. Um, it just, a lot of times, getting up that early, it just, let's be honest, it just sucks. Nobody really wants to be up that early. And the truth was, I didn't really want to be up that early, and I really wasn't feeling it, but I knew... Uh, once I got there, I was going to be fine. So I, I, um, you know, had coffee with me and I was driving from Latham where I live, uh, up to exit 30 to, to go into Keene Valley. And, um, uh, was going to be going to what's called the garden parking area. And I got there just shortly before six and it was in the dark and by headlamp changed into my shoes that I was going to be using to hike and, um, you know, got the things tuned up on my pack and, there's really only one car in the parking lot, which is really unusual for that parking lot. Um, normally, on uh, a weekend, particularly a nice weekend, uh, there will be a lot of people in the parking lots in the high peaks, and you have to get there early to get a parking spot. So I thought that was rather strange. And and I can tell you that at 6 o'clock in the morning, I was starting off by headlamp, and um, and I had to go up to Johnsburg Valley, and um, my objective was to go up Haystack first. And it wasn't really until I'd gotten almost to the um, the Johnsburg Lodge, which is a couple of miles up the trail, that it really started to get light, and I really started to feel it. Like, okay, this is good, but I just really was having one of those days where I just wasn't feeling it. And that I think that's pretty common for people to do things in the outdoors, and and um, you know you have to keep on hiking, I guess, until the spirit moves you. And um, and it dawned a beautiful day. It was a gorgeous day, and um, I kept hiking. I didn't see a soul all day long, which is also really unusual in the Adirondack High Peaks. Um, and um, I'd never climbed Haystack before. And uh, in fact, these three peaks that I was doing, I'd never, never been on them before. Um, and um, I caught my first glimpses of Little Haystack and Haystack, which I think are two of the more spectacular peaks of the Adirondack High Peaks. Uh, they're above the tree line and they're very rocky and it involves rock scrambling to get to, to the tops and down the backs of them to continue on. And um, I had a little, as we say, a sip and a crumb on the top of Haystack and it was a gorgeous day and used my phone to snap some pictures and um, I had a long ways to go. So I'm like, okay, on to the next one, Basin. So um, I headed down that and uh, I was by myself, which people, I guess, might think is crazy. But um, um, sometimes it's hard to find hiking partners, particularly at the last minute when you decide, OK, it's going to be a nice day in two days. I'm going. Um, and uh, I do a lot of my a lot of this I'll do in the middle of the week. And most people are still working and um, I'm fully exploiting the New York state pension system. So I could do this, you know, I could, I could do this when I felt like doing it. <laughs> um, so um, getting over to the summit of basin was um, it's, it's, it's challenging. It's pretty rugged descending off of haystack and getting to basin. Um, 
And um, I stopped, snapped a few more pictures on the top of the basin. And I'm like, okay, sweet. Uh, the next one is Saddleback. And Saddleback is, um, is, a, is a peak, which um, I guess on the west side of it, which is what you ascend, uh, it has a, what would be third to fourth class rock to be scrambled. Probably, I'm guessing probably 800 to 1,000 feet of, of uh, third to fourth class rock, which means that it's exposed and a fall could involve, and involve serious injury or maybe death. Um, but it's, it's not fifth class. It's not the type of rock that you would normally belay. Um, so I was kind of thinking about that, and I really wasn't thinking about the descent off of basin. So right at the very top, I, you know, I had to make a traverse down and then start dropping into the notch between basin and saddleback. And I, um, I immediately noticed that there was quite a bit of ice. There was almost like a small ice flow, which, um, which was next to what I had to descend that it kind of got my attention. Um, I didn't need to put micro spikes on because it was, um, I, I could avoid the, the ice and um so it was pretty rugged and i was really paying attention to down climb what i needed to down climb and and i finally got down to almost the base of basin and there was a rock slab which um i, I hesitate to say how the steepness of it maybe 30 degrees it was a slab and i just looked at it and i just thought this is kind of featureless and in a lot of adirondack trails are uh, very muddy as in, and th this trail was no different and I encountered quite a bit of mud. So I had mud on my feet. Um, and I, I must say the other car that I saw in the parking lot was another party and they were doing Haystack Basin Saddleback, but from the other direction, they had climbed Basin first. And I actually ran into them just as I was starting to leave the summit of Basin. And I said, you know, I was the trail and I said, Oh, it gets fine. Um, didn't really think too much about it. You know, a lot of times going up steep things is a lot easier than coming down them. Um, and I got to the slab and I just looked at it and I just thought, this is featureless. You know, trying to figure, study this to figure out, okay, let's put the put this together and trying to figure out how to get down this thing. Um, and um, I finally just had to decide to commit to it, which I did. And I started backing down it. And, uh, you know, when I did, uh, one of my feet went out from underneath me and the next thing you know, I was in a tumbling fall and I had a trekking pole in my hand and I'm not really sure what I did with the trekking pole, but I just remember finally tumbling and it wasn't a vertical fall. It was a tumbling kind of fall. Um, and it was a smooth slab. So it wasn't really until I, I hit the bottom. Um, you know, I realized, God, you know, it just happened here. And, um, and I felt a, a pain in my, in my, um, my left leg. And, um, and I, and I looked down and I had this huge gash that was, um, across my, my left calf, um, you know, well below my tibial plateau. And, um, and it was filled with dirt and sticks and it was bleeding. And, and I was like, ah, oh, crap, you know, I cut myself and I'm thinking like, all right, it's just, it's just a cut. How bad can this be? And in piecing it together in retrospect, it probably was, I lost control of my trekking pole and it was my trekking pole that probably stabbed me in the leg and ripped my leg open, but it happened so fast. I'll, I'll never really know for sure. Um, so I knew from having had previous things happen, like broken my arm in 2001, that the best time to do anything that's going to be painful is right after it happens while you're still have a sympathetic response. And, 
So I knew that I didn't want to wait long. So I just immediately, you know, I started pulling the dirt and sticks out with my fingers. And I had a, I'm a kind of an ultralight enthusiast. I, I don't carry a Nalgene bottle. I usually carry smart water bottles and with a squirt cap. And uh, so I um, used my smart water bottle and irrigated it. And it stung like the Dickens because, you know, it's, you know, regular water's hypotonic and it hits your tissue and it hurts. And, but I just gutted it and, um, you know, pulled the debris out as best I could and irrigated it. And then it was still bleeding like crazy. So I, I, uh, rummaged in my first aid kit in the pack and, uh, put a five by nine on it and an elastic wrap and the bleeding controlled pretty rapidly because it was, it was our, uh, it was venous, not arterial flow. And, um, and I was like, then, you know, being the, you know, the medic that I am, I, you know, checked myself out from head to toe. I'm like, is there anything else wrong with me here? And, you know, I had an abrasion on my elbow, which you might imagine. And, and I was able to bear weight on my lug. And I'm like, all right, well, this isn't good, but, um, you know, I, I can, I can do this. So, so I started hobbling and I had my, uh, my trekking pole, which I had retrieved that was next to me. And I started hobbling and, and, uh, it just kept getting more and more and more painful. And, it was pretty evident to me that my the muscle compartment was swollen because of the stab wound that I had in the leg in addition to the big soft tissue injury. And, you know, because we're in the business, I knew that this was a high risk wound and I knew that it was going to have to be explored and I was probably going to have to go to surgery and it was going to be a big deal. Um, but it never crossed my mind that I would might have to get rescued. And I just thought, you know, you know, as a rescuer yourself, about the last thing you want to do is, is have to be rescued. I mean, if you're a firefighter, you don't want to have a fire at your house and have your department come to put it out, you know? Uh, otherwise it's just, you know, it's just a shame. And I was, I was always a fan of Garrison Kaler, Prairie Home Companion, and he did the rhubarb pie commercials. And, you know, it was like, wouldn't this be a good taste, a good time for a piece of rhubarb pie? Like nothing tastes, <laughs> nothing washes the, the shame of humiliation, shame and humiliation out of your mouth, like a piece of rhubarb pie. So, um, uh, you know, I was hobbling and, uh, and I, it came, became evident to me that I was just hopping on one leg. And by that time I was starting to ascend, um, saddleback and I wasn't, I was maybe a hundred yards from the base of the cliffs. Um, and I, I couldn't, I was trying to climb and scramble up rock and I was trying to do that with two hands and one leg. And there was just no way that I was, I was moving And right around that time. I, right after the accident, I turned my I had my phone in airplane mode and I took it off airplane mode. And all of a sudden the text messages and everything that had been holding all started coming through. And I'm realizing like, Oh, well, I guess I have service here. Um, and, um, so I was actually having to really think this through that, uh, well, what am I going to do here? I don't think I can climb this cliff with one arm and, or excuse me, two arms and one leg. And uh, I'm hobbling. And then even if I get to the top of Saddleback, I have about 10 miles to go. Um, so um, I realized I was in quite a predicament. And, um, and I, I wasn't sure at that point why I couldn't bear weight on my leg other than um, I thought maybe I'd broken my fibula because, uh, you know, that's painful. But your tibia is your weight bearing bone of your leg. And um, so finally I had to resign myself to the fact that I had to sit down and it was at this point, it was about four o'clock and I had probably about an hour and a half of usable daylight left. And I realized I was in a spot 
Um, I was well prepared. I had a puffy jacket and, you know, rain shell and all the things that you might expect. And I had a foam pad on my pack, which I always go out with. Um, and um, I had both my Garmin inReach and I also had my cell phone, which was working. And right around the time I'm resigning myself to the fact that I'm going to have to probably call for help, uh, my wife texted me saying, she was in Vermont with her mom. My, my wife was over in Ira, Vermont, and texted me asking, how's your day going? And I had to text her back saying, um, I have taken a fall. I'm hurt. I'm probably going to have to call for rescue. And she's like texting me back. Okay, well, let me know how that goes <laughs> uh, or something to that effect. <laughs> and um, so um, I, I have the, uh, I know how the, system works. And I knew that if I used a Garmin inReach, if I activated it, um, it would it would go to Garmin, who would then send it to the um, Air Force Rescue Coordinating Center, who would give it to the state authority, who would give it to the county. or And it goes through multiple hands by the time it gets to people. And um, I realized it was going to take quite a bit longer if I had done that. So um, I, I had cell phone service and I had the Ranger emergency number. So I I called um, and um, and and I got through to the DEC forest rangers and much like we do in our park to have someone who kind of screens the search and rescue calls who I guess you would call the, their search and rescue coordinator who was one of their um, their officers perhaps a lieutenant and um, chatted with them on the phone told them what my predicament was and um, you know explained to them you know I'm a paramedic and I'm also a national park ranger myself out west and we had a good chuckle about that. He, he said something to the effect of, well, you're going to probably owe us big time for this. <laughs> I'm not sure that's exactly what he said in my haze, but it was, but it, we had a bit of a chuckle. We had a moment. Um, so he said, um, um, you know, he knew where I was and the, the notch between Basin and Saddleback is one of the most rugged places in the Adirondacks. And if they had had to carry me out of there, uh, it would have been probably a multi-day ordeal. Um, and the New York State Police and the DEC Forest Rangers uh, have a cooperative program with the State Police helicopter, um, and they have a Bell 430 with a hoist out of Saranac Lake. And in um, the State Forest Rangers staff that helicopter as a crew chief, and and the people that get inserted in the backcountry, and they're very good. Um, when I was a chief in Colony, we did the similar thing with the Albany-based aircraft, and we used to go to the high peaks occasionally to back up the Forest Rangers. Um, they are the state DC forest rangers are very uh, a very special group of people. Uh, their DC is in charge of all search and rescue for New York State, and in every county of the state, there's at least one ranger. In some of the counties, there are multiple rangers, and the ones that get assigned to the high peaks are pretty accomplished um, in their craft of being mountaineers, and um, and they're they're quite good. Um, so. Um, Basically, he said, okay, look, at we're, we're coming for you. We're refueling at the airport right now from a previous mission. Um, put something on to make yourself visible. And if you hear the helicopter coming, um, you know, wave and wave something that's high visibility. And I, I usually, you know, in the autumn when I'm hiking, I always have like orange or red things. So that's what I had with me. Um and I just sat there. I splinted my leg with a SAM splint. And uh, the next thing you know, um, they were overhead. And the, I didn't know it at the time, but the pilot, I knew because actually he 
flew in Albany and I had flown with him, Scott Catranas, who uh, was the pilot. Uh, I didn't know who it was flying at the time and it didn't really matter. I wasn't, wasn't ready to have a bro down with anybody. Uh, but um, one of the Rangers uh, came down the hoist cable and um, put a full body harness on me and a helmet on me and, you know, got me ready to be, um, be flown. And then um, one of the other, they came back into position and hoisted me. And I was very familiar with that because I flew in the Albany aircraft and actually crew chiefed and operated the hoist on the Albany aircraft, which was the same aircraft, just a different, um, different one. Um, and uh, so, you know, other than the fact that I was injured, it felt a little bit like a training operation that I'd done many times or a rescue operation I'd been on. Um, so I get into the aircraft and they, they uh, did a fly around and came back and got the other ranger extracted him and we're sitting in the, on the, fl on the floor, they got me secured in. And, and I know that I've, I've got to go have surgery. I know that I've got to get to the hospital, but in my, my denial, um, which is an important part of the story that, um, you know, when you're injured, you're really in denial. And we see this all the time because people are injured or they're sick and they're just in denial about what's going on. Well, that's, that's a thing. And I'll tell you that I really experienced that. And I'm in the back of the aircraft and and I said, well, can you guys get me someplace or get me to my car so I can just drive down to Saratoga? Because that's closer to home than, say, Saranac Lake, you know. Um, and when I broke my arm in 2001, the person I was climbing with was an old friend, Clark Hayward. Uh, you know, he, I splinted my arm and we drove to Saratoga and I got treatment there. Uh, and one of the Rangers kind of looks at me with disbelief and says, uh, no, you're kind of on our program now. And our procedure is we bring people to Adirondack Medical Center and they kind of triage the situation and um, we'll take it from there. And, and uh, he goes, we're going to, we're going to land at Adirondack Medical Center. What you do from here is up to you. Um, you know, they they were really nice about it, but I just knew that it was like, no, you know, they didn't say that that was a stupid idea or anything, but you could just, I could just tell because we can tell that they really thought that was a dumb idea. <laughs> so, um, we landed, they came out with a wheelchair and they, they, as they're wheeling me up to the emergency department, I see, um, person who was a paramedic program director, Bruce Berry was also an RN and working in the ED. So I saw Bruce right away and they all had a chuckle on and they were like, oh, it's you. <laughs> um, and um, they kind of knew that I was coming in with this big gaping wound. And, um, and there was a orthopedist that was pretty renowned because Saranac Lake um, in Lake Placid is a big Olympic training center. So they have really good orthopedists there. And they held over um, one of the orthopedists who was pretty well known, Dr. Smith. And um, the PA and the ED saw me right away and the nurses started an IV on me and um, they gave me really good drugs. They gave me Dilaudid for my pain because I was in quite a bit of pain. And And Dr. Smith came in and uh, he just kind of took one look at it and um, said, no, we're, we're going to the operating room. And he, he called for anesthesia and, you know, probably within an hour or so, maybe an hour and a half, um, they had me in the OR debreeding my wound and and um and i woke up from that and uh, i had a drain in my leg and I, I and here i was with a realization that boy things have changed here um uh wasn't i couldn't really bear weight on it and part of the reason for that is the muscle compartment had swollen 
And they had to actually, when Dr. Smith went in, he actually had to do a little bit of a fasciotomy into the muscle compartment. And, um, um, and I had a, I, by that in the ED, I called Ruth, my wife, and, um, there wasn't anything she was going to do. So it didn't make sense for her to come up. So she came up the following day, which was Halloween when I was released with a muscle, um, with a drain in the muscle and the, and, uh, they, um, made an appointment with an orthopedic group, Ortho New York, uh, here in the Albany area. And, um, I had that appointment within a couple of days and the wound and putting it down was exquisitely painful because of the swelling. And, um, they, um, eventually they saw me and didn't like the looks of the wound right away. Uh, and they scheduled me for a repeat appointment in a couple more days. And then Within a couple more days, of that, within a week of that, they had me back in surgery again um, and opened my leg up and did a muscle fasciotomy. And I had this huge gaping wound in my leg, which was really almost, I don't know, nine to 12 inches long from the muscle fasciotomy. And um, and I, I woke up and it, the doctor who, who was the orthopedist that treated me here in Albany, um, I also... I sat with him on an airplane and he, um, he, um, was also quite a mountaineer himself and had very accomplished had you know, done a lot of mountaineering around and been on expeditions. And he kind of got me as a patient. Most of the time, um, people just don't get you, you know, as patients, they, they yeah. just think that you're like a typical person who's going to sit and not really be thinking about what's next. And, sure. um, so I woke up from that with uh, a big gaping wound in my leg uh, to let the pressure out of the muscle. And they um, they put a wound back in, which is a foam rubber dressing in the wound. And um, there's a airtight covering over the top of that. And there's a suction pump pulling vacuum on it all the time to help it grow up. The wound grow out from the bottom and evacuate fluid. So, um, and um, I was... I spent a night in the hospital with that and then was released to home and, um, and, and kind of counseled that, well, when they come to do the dressing change, because the dressing change had to be done three times a week, that you're going to need to pre-medicate for the pain. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, how painful can that be? So, you know, they gave me Oxycontin for the pain. And, and I have to tell you that I really was not prepared for how painful the wound dressing changes were going to be. In fact, I would say that it was far and away the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. It was wow. like, it was like slowly ripping off a, a giant bandaid, <laughs> tearing, bringing tissue with it. And, um, and I think I traumatized the visiting nurse that she never <laughs> came back after that. Um, and they, they had to send another one who was maybe had more background in, in wound care. Um, um, and my wife, Ruth, who is a registered nurse and who we married um, 46 years, and she um, hmm. she just waited on me hand and foot and took incredible good care of me and had to bring me everything and make meals and help me to the bathroom. And, um, you know, I was on crutches for quite a while. And then around Thanksgiving, I was able to graduate to a walker. I was able to bear some weight on it. And then... Um, um, I had dressing changes three times a week and it was just crazy, crazy painful. Um, and you know, I would say, uh, you know, around just before Christmas, I had a, a skin graft, uh, to close the wound and hmm. a plastic surgeon did the skin graft. And then, 
by the first week in January, all the staples were out, and I was able to try. I've been able to start walking and resuming normal activities. And um, you know, I guess in in reflecting on it, I, I'm really grateful for a bunch of things. First is having an incredible uh, wife, my you know, my wife Ruth, who um, is an amazing person, and um, and you know, amazing mother to our children and an amazing wife. And, um, she just threw herself into taking care of me and, um, and, and supporting me because, you know, a lot of my life has been moving in the mountains, whether it's be climbing on rocks or ice or skiing and, um, and spending time in the Tetons and, and the Adirondacks and all the stuff that I do. And, you know, you're going through all this emotional turmoil about, I don't know, am I ever going to be able to do this again? Um, and and then the embarrassment of you as a rescuer having to be rescued. Um, and I have to say, everybody that treated me, the Rangers um, and the ED staff, they were all incredible, incredible providers um, who really got it um, and were, were supportive. And, um, you know, but having even with all of that, um, there's the physical trauma that you go through, which can be quite painful, but there's also the emotional um, turmoil that you have when you, um, um, you know, when you're injured. And that's a thing also. And I think the two big takeaways I come away from the experience with are one is the, the denial. Um, and, um, you know, you're messed up, you're, you're screwed up and you're kind of in denial about this. And, um, you know, and at first I was in denial that, oh, I can get myself out of here because I certainly didn't want to call for rescue um, if I could walk a little bit. But And I didn't get to the realization that I needed help until I couldn't walk. Um, and um, and not all the emotional turmoil of, um, of the trauma that you've been through and keep in reliving the moment of the accident and what should I or could I have done differently. and in uh, the turmoil of, am I going to be able to resume activities? And I also count myself really grateful that my injuries weren't worse. Like my wife correctly pointed out that I could have hit my head or that that trekking pole could have stabbed me in the chest or the abdomen, and it probably would have had a very different outcome. Um, and um, I think that's, is, is really difficult. And honestly, uh, going to work, you know, I was able to get myself rehabbed, worked out, get my fitness level back. Um, and I was ready physically to go back to work in the Tetons. And I didn't really talk a lot about it with people I worked with, but I definitely had some moments of doubt where I was crossing rock slabs and doing the things that I normally do where uh, I was, I had a moment a few times where I wouldn't say that I was freaked out, but you know, I was definitely flashing back to the moment where I slipped and I was tumbling and thinking, you know, this could easily happen here. Um, and there it would be much, much greater consequences because routinely we move around on uh, on terrain, which is like the Saddleback Cliffs, which is much bigger. You know, like the whole mountain is like that. Um, so um, there's that whole emotional part of it. And um, I, I haven't really been, you know, I've had a number of people because I do speaking at conferences who said, oh, you're going to turn this into a conference presentation now, aren't you? And I'm like, no, no, I don't want to glorify what happened. Um, um, 
And so, you know, the big takeaway for me is um, as a provider, um, I, I have much more heightened sense of awareness about the denial that we, we go through as a, as the casualty. Um, I'm also really aware of the conversations that people have and how hmm. people perceive what we say to them. Um, and I will tell you that the ranger that came down the cable was really good. He's came down and he said, his name is Chris. And he said, listen, we got you. We're going to take good care of you now. Hmm. I'm going to get you in this body harness and get a helmet on you. And, um, and I really was not going to be that guy who was going to try and tell him how to do his job because he knew how to do his <laughs> job really well. Uh, and, um, a total professional. And so I just followed his instructions and, uh, he kind of knew the way I was handling the harness that I knew something about it, but it was his job to put it on me and to make sure that it was secured. And I wasn't going to mess around with that. And, um, how he communicated with me, the crew chief and the helicopter, how they communicated with me and dealt with me um, and the folks in the emergency department the, and the, the physicians that I had were, they were really terrific. Their, their bedside manner and them focusing on me as a patient saying, okay, you know, they didn't give me any expectations that were unrealistic, but they definitely um, knew about the psychological and emotional effects of a trauma. Um, you know, I sometimes think as rescuers, we lose sight of that, that it's, it's very helpful that when we first get to somebody, we just introduce ourselves and we say, look, you're having a bad day today. Hmm. There was no judgment from those Rangers at all. They didn't, I mean, I'm sure because I'm in the business there afterwards, they were like, you know, they were probably talking about it, but they certainly didn't give that message to me at all. Um, and, um, they, um, they were totally, totally professional. I think in New York state, we're lucky to have the cooperative program between our New York state police and the DC forest rangers. And, um, um, so a tip of the hat to them. Um, and I think they, they deal with this a lot. Um, oh. and I certainly, as the patient, um, as I said, came away with, much greater appreciation of the fact that we're, how much we're in denial and how much our words matter hmm. as rescuers, you know, coming down the cable, he just totally put me at ease. And, um, and then all their words and their actions that followed that, you know, were really consistent with that. And, um, you know, how many times as rescuers, you know, we end up having side conversations with people and we're not necessarily focused on the patient. Um, but, um, it was, I'm here. I'm Chris. I'm going to take care of you. We're going to get you out of here. You're in good hands right now. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and that was followed up by what happened in the emergency department and everything I experienced along the way. Um, so, um, and, you know, the success story is um, I went back and I actually did a base camp patrol on Denali this year with the Park Service. And, um, and I worked a season. Uh, in the Tetons and did a bunch of rescues myself um, hmm. that we had to wheel out. I had a couple, we flew out by helicopter. And um, um, so I guess there is something to be said as a rescuer to be a rescuee sometimes, mm -hmm. because it gives us a much better appreciation of, of um, 
you know, how things go. And, and of course, we all know life is really fragile. It can change in the blink of an eye. And um, so I'm just grateful for a lot of things. I'm grateful for really good friends and, and my wonderful wife and a really supportive emergency response community. And um, thankful that I live someplace where I could be rescued so quickly because, you know, had I not made that call when I did, the chances are I probably would have been out there till sometime the next day and the weather wasn't anywhere near as good. So uh, it could have had a very different outcome on many different levels. So. John, uh, that that's an amazing story. Um, I'm going to just say thank you uh, beyond measure. And I'm sure the listeners are, are probably wherever they are listening to this, echoing that same sentiment, just because acknowledging that this is one of the first times you've fully shared the story, um, is probably not easy. Um, but I really appreciate, I, I was just trying to internalize again. Now this is the, the second time I've heard, um, actually all the way through the first time, but, uh, a lot of details there, John, that. I think are so, so important. It's, it's funny. I'm, I normally ask all of the folks that I interview this question, you know, oh, what do you want the listeners to do tomorrow? And I'm laughing because I, I, I feel as if I don't actually need to ask you that simply because, and I want, <laughs> I want to offer you the chance to, to answer it if you'd like, but I almost want to just insert everything you just said as the, what would you like the listeners uh, to do tomorrow simply because, I, and I will, I absolutely, after this, I want, I want to turn that back to you, but, um, the, the piece that I just can't shake and really has meant a lot to me. Um, am I in the back of the ambulance every day? No, I'm not. I'm a captain now. So I find myself, um, you know, doing the leadership piece, spinny chair piece uh, quite a bit more, but it doesn't matter, uh, where you are, whether you're in the office or the back of the ambulance or in the helicopter, um, words matter and the human aspect of this job you said that and i just i you know when you are the rescuee when when the rescuer becomes the rescued it i can't imagine what that must do in your brain and like you said everything from the denial piece to uh, uh now i'm sure the rescues you did this past summer and in, in, uh, in the tetons um even just little tiny bits of it were probably different. You're a good provider. You're a great provider. But if we can, if anyone listening to this is saying, you know, we all have bad days, sure. But every, even on your bad days, those words that you say to people, their emergency and those words truly, truly matter. So I'll, I'll turn it back to you, John, for, for that wrap up question. Uh, if you want to foot stomp any amazing things that you've already said. Well, I appreciate it, Prescott. I, I think, um, you know, there's this concept in, like in paramedic education, there's a part called therapeutic communications, which is a 35 cent word, which refers to communicating with people in a way which um, shows your compassion and kindness. And um, we, and I, I have another story I can tell you, I don't have time right now, but just recently my sister had a stroke and it was in denial about the fact that she was having a stroke and was busy trying to talk the paramedics out of taking her to the hospital. Well, she has a large vessel occlusion and facial droop on one side and weakness and slurred speech. And so I think that's a thing. I think um, we encounter people having their worst moments and they desperately, all of us want to be as we were just before the moments before this happened. And we tend to deny sometimes the situation that we're in. And um, 
sometimes PMTs and paramedics fall back on, well, we can't take anybody to the hospital that doesn't want to go. Um, I think the onus is on us to look beyond that sometimes and do what we know is right, which is um, talk to people in a therapeutic manner and convince them about the gravity of their situation and that they really need follow-up. I think, you know, along with that, um, more important, you know, certainly we do things like we splint things and we get pain medications that we give people. And those are super important. I also think communicating with our patients and looking at them and talking to them is really important. Um, and letting our patients know that, um, okay, I'm here now. We're going to do a good job of taking care of you in uh, demonstrating that to our patients by looking at them and talking to them and not being distracted while we're um, in the back of the ambulance or wherever we are any more than we have to be. Um, and, um, and understand that the person that we're going after to treat who's having that bad day is has a significant physical problem, but they also have an emotional issue that we may not completely understand unless we've had this experience our, ourselves. Um, and that is, for me, it was a big, huge take home of this whole thing. And it, I've always been really focused on patients and talking to them and, and um, demonstrated kindness and compassion towards our patients. But after this whole thing, it's even more so now. Um, I guess I have much greater empathy for what people are going through. You know, I think a coping mechanism that we all have is that we go through a lot as rescuers. We see a lot. A lot of things are very traumatic to us, and we deal with that by our dark sense of humor and um, and sometimes, you know, putting up emotional walls. Uh, and if we didn't do that, I don't think you could get through a career in emergency services. I mean, we all do that, right? But but at the same time, um, probably the most important thing we do is to communicate with our patients. Probably as important as any drug that we might give or procedure that we do, uh, it's looking at our patients in the eye or sometimes taking their hold in their hand and saying, look, at you're dealing with some things right now, but here, we're going to take really good care of you and we're going to get you to where you need to go. Um, I guess that's my take home. I love that, John. Thank you uh, so much for that. And again, for this story. Um, one of the things that you had said uh, when we were chatting was that you have become very grateful. Not that you weren't before, but you become great grateful for what you have. Um, and what I'll say is that uh, I'm grateful to have you on the podcast. I'm grateful for this message to get out there, uh, as I'm sure the listeners are too. So thank you so much for, for coming on today, John. Um, I will be sure to add in the show notes some information if folks want to get in touch with you, whether it be, sure. um, you know, book a class to hear more about the, the you know, everything from the leadership boot camp to any other messages that John has to say. But, um, you, you know, also there's so, so many awesome lessons to be learned from this. So uh, please share this. If you did like this uh, episode or any of the previous ones, please make sure to uh, like and subscribe. Uh, and again, looking forward to having all of the listeners back for the next episode. Uh, and John, thank you so much for this. Thanks for the opportunity, Prescott. Absolutely. Take Merry, care. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And you as well, John, and to everyone else as well. Thanks a lot. Take care.